welcome to We Are The People, a podcast that speaks to people like you about your lives. With me, Philip Burke. Perception and reality can be two very different things. In most cases, when we find that perception does not meet reality, we quickly make a change. Becoming a professional footballer was Dean Clark's dream, and for 10 years he lived that dream in Ireland. However, the realities of his dream life are a far cry from the fame and fortune you would associate with being a professional footballer. If I offered you a job, your dream job, and told you the salary would make it hard to get by, and your contract would only last for 10 months of the year, would you accept my offer? And if you did, how long would you stick at it? Struggling to afford to do the things he wanted to do, Dean decided to take a second job as a personal trainer, and it wasn't long before he realised football had been holding him back, and now life as a personal trainer was something that could sustain him, inside and outside the gym. Last year, Dean was honest enough to face the reality and make a change, and today he tells me what it was really like to play professional football in Ireland. This is the power of those two words, professional footballer. This is Dean Clark. Dean Clark, thank you very much for uh, taking time to join the podcast this morning. Mr. Burke, thanks for having me on. Mate. I've been looking forward to this all week. The first question I ask most of my guests, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, um, see, I was a bit of a weird kid. Um, <clears throat> I grew up in a real sporty family. Well, no, it wasn't a real sporty family. My brother was mad at football. My dad was mad at football. But you'd always tell people, and I even wrote in, I remember I only seen a little while ago when I was in sixth class, they asked you that thing, what are you going to do when you grow up? And I actually wrote in a professional footballer. And I also wrote electrical engineer. And sure, I didn't even know. I just presume, because I love TVs, and I love electronics. I was like, yeah, I'm going to be the person that designs them. So I actually wrote that. And I used to tell my mom, yeah, I'm going to become a electrical engineer. And she's like, okay. Yeah, yeah okay, dude. Um, <laughs> but yeah, obviously the, the, the first one was professional footballer. So that was what I always kind of t- hoped. You know me, as a kid, you hope to be these things, but you don't know how to even go about it. And next thing you know, you're 13, 14 years old and you hear about players going to England and they're becoming professional footballers. You're here, they're getting contracts, they're starting to get paid at 15, 16 years old, where I was still drinking in the fields and playing for Joey's or whoever I was playing for at the time. And getting paid for this is a mile away. And then next thing I knew, I was kind of closing in on it where I got close to UCD and I was close to League of Ireland. And I was like, oh, this was close to coming to reality. But it was like that. I, I could never pinpoint it when I thought well, I could start really taking this serious because as a kid growing up, I, I never took it that serious. And then all of a sudden, next thing I knew, I was kind of getting into that elite stage of it. And it just kind of spiraled from there. And I just kind of kept going and became the biggest focus of my life pretty so far. Like, as a kid, had you as much chance of becoming an electrical engineer as a professional footballer? Yeah, probably more because, like, of course, I could have worked just as hard. But as a kid, I would have never been anything special. Like, I would have grown up not playing at the top level. There was kids in my school better than me. There was, like, I, I was lucky enough to go to school even when I was from first year on. That Some of the lads I played were some of the best kids in Ireland. So even in my school, I wasn't one of the best. Even in my class, maybe I wasn't one of the best because I would have lads in my class that went over to England and stuff. Um, like, I would have always been good, but, like, to say I'd go on and make a 10-year career out of it, nah, for sure, I never would have thought of. So, yeah, you could probably say I would have been better off going to college and become a mechanical engineer, but I wouldn't have got the points for that either. So. <laughs> what were you like as a, as a kid? Quite adventurous. I was only thinking about this the other day when I, I had... Well, actually, it was last week on Mother's Day, I, I, I had a good chat with my mom about... Some of the stuff I got up to, and I would have been, I was really adventurous. And I, there's, it's almost like I hear a story as a kid today, it wouldn't, not to say impress me, but it wouldn't 
kind of make me go, Jay, you're a mad little fella because some of the stuff I got up there as a kid is unbelievable. I used to have a very good friend and the two of us together, like Dennis the Menace wouldn't have had a chance. <laughs> and I would have been, it was second year summer, so maybe 14, 15. Like at the time, I, I used to hate, I don't know why, I used to always hate asking my mom for money. And if I did it because I need, I needed something in my pocket just to get on a bus. I needed something just in case. So she could give me two, three euro, but I'd come home, I'd leave the house at maybe 11 a.m. By the end of the day, I come home, say, about 10 p.m., half 10. And mom's like, where are you today? I was like, well, I went from Dundrum and I traveled. I got the Bray and then I went to Bray and went to Greystones. Then I got the Greystones. I got the bus back to Dundary and then I went swimming in Dockey. And then I'd have this day where I was all over Dublin. And she'd be going, what? She's like, what did you? Oh, well, I went in Tesco and I got this thing for 30 cents. And then, like, then the, the party comes out. I was like, oh, well, and then I went down to this bottle. Like, oh, yeah, I went in and then I, like... I stroked half of the food I got, so I only had to pay 50 cents and stuff. So just, um, but that would be my summer for an entire year of going around with a school bag on my back with a towel in it because I go swimming constantly, jumping off bullock and stuff at 14, 15 years old. And if anyone that knew me, I was tiny. So I was this little shit running around causing, not trouble, but I didn't mean, like you never, as a kid, you never think you're doing something bad. But looking back at now, we were causing trouble. Like we were doing silly things. Like if I'd say in his house at 10 p.m. at nighttime, we're like, right, we go out some cars like and that was what we do it was just and we never see the bad in it and only now if you're driving along you get hit by a car how pissed off you that someone's just ruined your window but as a kid you don't even realize how like how serious that could be or how dangerous it could be you just think right we're going to get a chase this is going to be great get the adrenaline up go home play fifa done i think then when i started to grow out of that was when i started taking football a bit more serious so I never really drank much as a kid where most people start drinking, I think, at 15, 16. Well, I used to always have a match on a f- Saturday morning. And most people, like, you go through the process of, oh, I start drinking on Friday and I don't know, whatever it was. But I was like, I can't, I've got a match. And then as things got more serious, I think when I was about 17, then I started to get pretty good. So I was like, right, I'll have a match. And so I, I have a chance to impress here. And like, I'm not going to lie, like, like, like everyone else, I went to parties and I, black there a couple of times and I like everyone growing up you learn to kind of adapt as a kid I think I I, I learned I matured as I learned from my mistakes big time like I got I, I got into trouble a couple of times and um, with the guards that really gave me a wake-up call stuff that I wouldn't even repeat like the stuff me and my family only know that I did that I wouldn't even repeat to be honest now it's funny sometimes we do like I, even last week I told you we were sleeping my mom we'd laugh about it but I learned from a big time and I learned how much I could mess my life up at that early age that it was just a massive slap in the face when you're sitting in the guard cell at 17 years old and you're like, oh shit. And you get scared and you realize, like, I don't want to be, it's horrible. You don't want to sleep in the, you don't want to sleep. So you don't want to learn to know what it be like that every night. It kind of woke me up and it kind of then said, right, especially when football got serious for me, I was like, right, this is kind of saved me essentially. Um, so You've gone from kind of, to kind of messing as, yeah, as a kid to get, it got, more serious of the guards are involved and in you a know, way luckily you had yeah. football to yeah I'm, I'm just I, and I, I'd probably have a strip this right for you but I'm only thinking of now and I, I've never actually considered this this much but it probably was it went from the case of us doing harmless things to then starting to get caught I think starting to get caught was obviously what really think really put it in where you start getting caught and then you start getting trouble for these things and then they start to build up and you have things like JLOs and all that build up and then you get to close when you're 18 and then you get to maybe you go to court for the first time and you're like, oh shit, I'm in court here in front of a judge for something I just did. And you're getting things like fines and stuff. And then that's when I remember thinking the first time I ever did that, I was like, right, 
this is it, like I have to cop on. And then um, I'd always think like, oh, I wasn't really my fault, I was in this situation. But then I remember it was, and for anyone that ever was in these situations, you do learn to recognize the situation where like, I remember one time I could have been in town and my mates were getting into a fight. And I was like, nah, like, like I'm not getting involved. And it wasn't that I was scared or it was just that I, re- I recognized it was a situation that I could, I could, get, I could get in trouble here. It was, that tra- it was a weird transition from when you're 14 to 18 that like four years is a long time. And especially through summer holidays when you're a kid and you're off doing nothing, a lot can happen and you can get into a lot of trouble. And some kids either like keep it going or else you can recognize it and step away from it. And I think that's luckily what I did. And I, I like I said, I, I can 100% thank football for that because it was one of these things. Whenever I got in trouble, it always seems to be drink involved especially as I got a little bit older. Um, I think a lot of people could say the same, but I really reduced the amount of times I would have been drinking through football because especially when, like I said, when I got to 17 and I started coming to the ranks of UCD, I would have been playing seven days a week nearly. Something that I'd never do was drink a day or two before even the match. So like that, it was almost like a saving grace for me. How did you end up in UCD? It sounds like your, your, your um, academic focus wasn't necessarily well, there. No, absolutely not. And I don't think it ever was there, even right up until I got into UC somehow. I was, I played for, I was in Outlands and my school, we had a ridiculously good uh, football team to the extent where I think our starting 11 had like 11 League of Ireland players when I was in fifth year. So I would have only been 17, like I was saying. And we were playing a match in UCD one day and I scored probably the best goal I've ever scored in my life. And I think Dermot Ali or Martin Russell, one of them were at the game. And shortly after that, the under-19 league was launched for UCD. So you're talking back in 2010, 2011. So a good 10 years ago now. And um, yeah, I think I was just pretty good on the day. And I then got invited to, I think they had trials at the time. I'm pretty sure this is how it went. I had trials time, but I was very close to sign for Bray because I was playing for Joey's at the time. There was a little link between Joey's and Bray at the time. And I went down and I was in the office with Pat Devlin, the chief, the first team manager at the time. I was like literally pen and paper. And for some reason, I just said, nah, dad, can I think about this? And at the time, like Bray, I was like, oh, it's the first team club or League of Ireland club. Like, this is really cool. And I think my dad was quite excited about it because he was a bit naive like me. He didn't know that they would even potentially interest anywhere else. But anyway, I got then a call off Martin Russell himself, um, which was kind of cool because I was like, oh, he's the first team manager. And he was like, I'd like you to come down. I think he said tomorrow and just to have a look around, right? But I was going out that night, right? <laughs> so I was like, yeah, Grant, I'm only going down to kind of have a look around. And I didn't think I'd be playing. So I went out and I kind of turned up semi hungover, no boots in hand, nothing. And uh, Martin said, "Stopping your gear." I go, no, I didn't know I was playing. I just you sh- wanted to have a chat. Because hang on there, I'll see if I can get you a pair of boots. So I was like, "Oh no!" So he went in, got me a pair of boots, gave me the the old baggy UCD, all the, the full navy UCD gear that you'd know. He said, "Come on, we're, you'll go out to the pitch with the lads." So I ended up going in, and at the time there was the A Championship. There's no under 19 team, so it was A Championship, which would have been full of the scholars or the lads that just weren't quite breaking into the first team. But a couple of men, like compared to me, there were men. I was only, was I, it must have been 17, and like I said, I was quite small and petite. But it was mixed with the first team, so I went into this team, this game with boots fucking too big for me, big baggy. You kind of, I felt shit going into it. I actually still remember to this day it was. Mick Leahy and Dave O'Connor and there's me jumping in like a little bit <laughs> hungover with like and uh, I ended up scoring in that game I ended up I remember I, someone put me I think Byron McCabe I think you have a weird memory of this Byron McCabe slid me down the side and I ended up scoring and I was like he's not a shit 
I like I didn't because I didn't know who Dave O'Connor was. I didn't know who McLee was. Like and they would know. I know Doc well. Like so, he wouldn't mind me saying. I was like, ah, this dangly fella. I was like, I, I'm just gonna run down the side and be grand. Then I find out sure these lads are the first team. I was like, wow. So I ended up doing that, and then about a week later, I had to go to these open trials, and then the open trials, I kind of, I wouldn't say I took the piss, but I remember I was being really good. But it was weird because I just jumped this level, and I remember jumping this level because that trial game was full of players in my league that I always grew up thinking they were better than me. I always grew up thinking, ah, oh, he plays for him, they, they, he plays for Belleville, he's really good. But I remember that trial game, I was like, geez, I, I might have scored, I was playing in front of the time, I might have scored a couple of goals, and I was like, geez, I'm the best player here. And I knew, it, not just because I was being cocky, I knew it because I was quite visibly getting on the ball, doing things, scoring goals. So, like, so then I ended up signing for UCD, 19, and then it got to a stage where I was so busy that I was playing for the 19th, playing for the A Championship, and then playing, I was kind of involved with the first team. So I remember one weekend in particular, and like this is what I mean by put a stop to, uh, to any going out, because I would have, on a Friday night, been involved with the first team. Now, I probably sat on the bench or else I would have been in the stand, but I was involved, so I had to be there. And this, I remember we played Derry away on the Friday for the first team. On the Saturday, a under-19 game down in Cove. So we're playing Cork, down in Cork. So I went from obviously the top of the country, right down south um, on the Saturday. And then we're back in Derry on the Sunday for an A-Championship final, which we lost. I still remember. Um, but I remember coming on and stuff. And at the time, like, I was so naive to what even you get. Like, I'm, you would have known this, that after match you get dominoes. And I'm thinking, Domino's off game, this is unreal. Like, I used to have to save up my two-year coins to, yeah, Domino's and stuff, where I'm getting it for free after the game and I'm buzzing. Um, so, like, at the time, I'm like, yeah, I'm with the first team. This is really cool. Like, not playing, but I'm there. And then 19th is where I'm like, well, I'm top dog here. And then a championship, I'm kind of like, ah, I'm involved. I'm happy. Like that, once I was involved in UCD, I kind of just flourished and I kind of adapted quite well. Like that, like, I would have seen the top boys at UCD, like the likes of Paul Curry, the likes of Graham Rose, Paul O'Connor. Mickley, all these fellas as like well-known people. I would have thought because they played in the League of Ireland, they played a couple of games and I'd go out, I'd see them they'd win, they'd win some games, lose 7-0 to Rover some weeks. But I, that's why I was like, oh, that's what I want to get to. And I remember thinking before I'd even made a first-team appearance, I was like, if I make one first-team appearance off the bench, I'll be happy. And I think that kind of was part of why I was always really hard working. I always thought, right, I wasn't good enough. I always had that in my head, I think, that I wasn't good enough or that I'm lucky, or maybe, like, you know, it was weird, because if you ever saw my first team debut, I did all right, and then I got thrown in a couple of times, and I was, abs- I, I'll still remember, if, if I watch if I watch back some of the clips, I'd be embarrassed, because I remember Dermot McNally would give you that look, and I could feel it in his eyes, where it was funny, we had Martin Russell, who put a lot of faith in me, and would keep throwing me in, keep throwing me in, even when the week before, I wouldn't have done well, and then I'd come back into training, I'd do all right, throwing the first team game, whatever it was, it just, it was a weird thing where I stepped onto the first team pitch and I just felt like it was 100 miles per hour and it just took me a little bit of time to adapt. Like I said, I'm, I, and I, I get on well with Dermot as well, but I remember at the time I was not afraid of him, but I'd look at him thinking, he knows I'm not up to this. But it was just a funny thing to try and comprehend all the time. Like it was constant, because you're constantly thinking of, right, who thinks I'm good enough, who doesn't, who blah, blah, blah. I'm fighting against his side. Like I would have had like Chris Lyons at the time who I was good friends with. Like me and him would have been competition together. If I was coming off the bench, he probably wasn't coming off the bench and vice versa. So it was a funny little battle um, that kind of taught me. When you start taking football seriously, straight through to, you know, being established in UCD, you're naming people there who 
a lot of people who listen to this have never heard of. Well, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. So that's the perception you have of these people. And mm-hmm. then the perception other people have of you seems like it's really important. Is that something you felt under pressure from? No, you know what? Yeah, like that, opinions are one hundred percent involved because at the end of the day, a manager doesn't like it. You don't play, and I went on to learn this later on in my career. But I think coming into it, I was just so propelled so quickly that I was really out of my comfort zone. So I wasn't like the type of lads who grew up constantly going on trials and constantly being told how good they were, and constantly at the top level, even a schoolboy. I would have kind of trickled along. Played my matches. If I scored a goal one week, I'd be pretty happy. If I played one well one week against one the Belvos or someone on the top teams, I'd be happy with that. I just never considered myself one of the. No, I never. No, I wouldn't consider. I just knew I wasn't at the time. Maybe it was because I was a bit smaller and stuff. My dad would have been always really pushing me, but I, for some reason I never. What did I say? Believe him? I don't know. I think I just had a lot of respect for the players around me. I thought they were good, and I just didn't realize the potential I had until it kind of just came out when I got a little bit older. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it was a mixture of. Not having anyone in the family involved at that level either, where I think I had friends that had grown up with brothers and uncles and stuff who had played at the level. They were a bit more familiar with it. I had nothing. Like I had, I had a couple of friends that were really good and stuff, but it was different because they had grown up going on trials and stuff and playing for Ireland every age group growing up. So I'd always look at them as being, oh, they're way better than me. The perception of yourself is always going to be based on someone else's opinion, because especially when it comes to football, because you can't put yourself in the starting lineup. You talk to any player who doesn't play on a week, they don't think now, no, no, some now I'll be honest, some some players will be like, ah, I probably didn't deserve. It. But 90% of the players will, nah, I should be playing this load of bollocks. But that's just football, and it might just be sports in general, but it's what I've gathered has always been the case. So you're always trying to impress someone. Because if you if you're not impressing that one important person, you don't play. You don't play, you don't get noticed, you don't get noticed, you don't get another contract. And then your career starts to go the opposite way. When you said you wanted to be a, a footballer, why did you want to be a footballer? Um, yeah, I think you chase the profile. Um, money and stuff, I think, is one thing. But everyone has this idea of what a footballer is. You train. Like, no, no, you know what? You don't even realise those things. All you see is the matches on the weekend. And you think, yeah, I want to be out playing there, scoring goals for the fans. And it's really exciting. You don't really know what lies beneath. You don't know the ups and downs. You don't know the mental kind of battle of it. Um, you just see the glamour of it and you think, yeah, I want it. Obviously, everyone thinks, I want to do that. Same way people look at like musicians and stuff. Like, I want to do that. You don't know what's actually involved. Most so you wanted that. You wanted the glory of scoring goals and playing the game. Yeah. Yeah. You, when, yeah. yeah. When does the kind of money and the, the fame and, the, you know, other people thinking you're such and such, when does that start to hit you? Is that at UCD or further on? So at UCD, it was funny, and um, I was only thinking about this as well, that when I was at UCD, and I think you see a lot with players, even any players, it doesn't matter what club it is, but UCD, you would have seen as well, where UCD, you don't get paid from UCD. If you do, you might get, especially when I was there, 200 quid a week, and that was if you're probably the top boy, you might be the captain or something. So I would have been walking into UCD getting maybe 50 quid a week, 100 quid a week, and thinking, Jesus, I'm, I'm a professional footballer, I'm getting paid to play football. And then obviously you might see yourself on TV or you might see yourself get mentioned on Twitter and you start thinking, oh, people know who I am. So I could like, and I started building these notions of myself. I was always quite humble and anyone who knows me, I'd never like in any way, Charlie, but I deep down would think, oh, they'll know who I am. Or I always knew that because I was like oh, on TV or something, like, oh, I tell someone I play League of Ireland. Or, but it was funny, you'd never say I play for UCD, but you'd always mention something like, oh, we play against Shamrock Rovers. 
just to give someone a reference point, because especially League of Ireland, you don't really people don't care like if you're not outside if you're outside the bubble. So I think it does the fact that you're at UCD just keep you humble a bit. But I would have known lads that thought they were big time playing for UCD, which is looking back and now in hindsight was ridiculous. Um, like especially lads that were on scholarships and stuff. You don't have to tell me who they were, but what are the kind of things that they'd be doing to or saying to to show that they thought that they because they were on scholarship in UCD, they were the equivalent of a well-known yeah. footballer. Like it was the attitude that always gave it away for me, where they thought they didn't have to run here or they could moan and stuff like that. And I would have been always the complete opposite. I just shook my mouth and I just did the work, and I was that was what I kind of just got me forward. I always just put the work in. Where I would have seen so many lads that they thought they were just like they thought they just made it, and they thought they could just not really look after themselves, go through the motions, training. Like I'd I'd always make sure when I came back in preseason that I was the fittest person there. Where some lads would come back with doing nothing, and they just like ask around, like I'm good enough or whatever. And um, and that like you can see stuff off the pitch, stuff they say and whatever else. But for me, the main thing was always with the attitudes, what they were like on the pitch, because they're obviously good players to get to where they were. Um, and think obviously the the people that recruit for the scholarships would have been quite aware of what their backgrounds like or what their personalities like, so they wouldn't like. They wouldn't be silly in who they record and who they recruited, but I think that changes very quickly when lads that maybe seen, like I said, seen themselves on TV, they might get a couple of goals and then they start thinking, "Oh, here I'm scoring goals in the best league in the, in Ireland." And what was the education um, part of your time in UCD like? Uh, so what I did because I was I was at UCD for four years and because I was doing quite well, they wanted to push me to get a scholarship. Um, and I'm if anyone that knows me, I'm always last minute com for everything now I'm getting better at it but everything was always like it would be grand and I'm still like that today I'm very easy going and even preparing for my leaving so I'm like it'll be grand I'm gonna get a scholarship and um, they're gonna give me points off I was so fake like I, I don't know how I thought like it'd be, it, everything would just work out so I didn't end up getting the points the first year so you get I think I remember I got my points on say a Monday and I didn't get in. I had to ring, I think it was Martin Russell time, so Martin, look, I didn't get the points. Oh, also, I forgot to apply for the elite scholarship that gets you a reduction in the points. My bad. You forgot um, to apply. Just forgot. Like, it was meant to say, so the elite scholarship at the time was one that gives you a point, uh, like a points reduction on your course. And it's, I think it's an all-around better scholarship you get. But I, should, I just forgot to apply for it. I just, I, I've been told weeks and weeks and weeks and it came, I was like, oh yeah, that's due on Friday. Yeah, I'll do that on Thursday. And I, 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 it's, just, it's just the way I always have been. So whatever day came around, Dermot McNally rang me. He was like, yeah, Dean, did you not apply? I'm like, oh shit. And I was like, oh no, I'll just do it now. He was like, no, you can't. So yeah, I ended up having to then repeat my leaving because I didn't get the points to get into UC, my first year scholarship. I can't remember who got it in ahead of me then. Um, and then second year came around then, got the points, got the scholarship. Went in to do uh, history, economics, and politics. Um, but then at this stage now, I'm well settled in the UCD. So all I'm concerned now is football and going to the gym. And this is where I kind of, my career kind of excelled, where I started falling in love with going to the gym. And I used to fucking hate getting pushed off the ball. And it was something I had happened to me all the time as a kid. I used to just accept that. I was like, oh, he's bigger than me. But then I started getting to the stage where, nah, nah, it's not happening anymore because this is what's kind of really restricted me. So I started like, I became like one of the fittest, strongest people I knew at the time. And this is now pushing on to when I'm like 20. So I would have repeated my leave and I would have been 20 at this age. So I'd been at UCD two years. And while on the scholarship then, we used to do morning gym sessions. So we, then at this age, I'm playing for the UCD college team because I'm on a scholarship. 
playing for the first team. So I'm training probably six days a week, going to the gym six days a week, including early morning sessions. And then it all kind of came. Like, and I'm fine at this stage. This is like just before Christmas, coming into the college competitions. And then I'm going to say after Christmas, we just won like the college's team, college's cup or whatever it was. I don't know. I think it came into January even. But pre-season with the first team was back. And then this is where the first time I ever realized that I'm not Superman. I ended up getting a pretty bad injury where I had overloaded my body so much that it resulted in me breaking my back, uh, well, breaking a bone in my back and putting me out for a year. So, and then became the nightmare process of a year of bumping into people like yourself every week saying, how are you? I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm getting better. And it was heartbreaking because at that stage I was flying. I really was. And I think that it changed my career so, so much. But also I learned so much from it because it ended up being a fracture that I, I didn't even find that out until about two, three months later. That's what it was. They thought it was muscular. They thought fucking groan pains, um, nerve problems, everything. They just kept, I, 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 and it was frustrating where I've turned up to these games and at the time we had a pretty good UCD team, but I would have been one of the players that we needed back. And I kind of knew that. And... It was so, it was demoralizing that I'd turn up every week and be like, oh, yeah, you know, you're back. And I'll be like, yeah, hopefully another two weeks. And this is eight months later, I'm still not back. And it just spiraled into this horrible year of just rehabbing it, thinking I'm okay, building it up strong enough that the bone obviously wasn't fixed, but I was building strength around it. And once I kind of really opened up or sprinted or turned, it would go again. And now I look back and I, I might, thank it for like I might say like it was actually a big learning curve because I learned a lot about then anatomy and I learned a lot about how to look after myself I learned a lot about respecting how to train myself and even something as simple as how to move my pelvis that I teach now on a daily basis that I know I know how to do it because I had to do it for every day for a full year um and then yeah that was actually then how my career usually ended through that injury because it came to the end of that season usually got relegated and I was tiptoeing back to then where I was fit but I think at the time I felt a little bit forgotten about so and this is always what football is about either feeling like you're wanted and not feeling like you're not wanted now UCD came to me and for sure I met with the lads and they offered me a contract but Martin Russell who is now the Limerick manager then came in he said he was taking a risk he was like how's the back and stuff I was like, and I was like yeah it's grand it's grand I'm back normal I got the all clear but I hadn't even ran yet I hadn't even tested it. I had no idea if I was going, if I took one sprint, was I going to be able to move? So I was like, yeah, Grant, so I'm going to bring it into Limerick next week and you're going to do a yo-yo test. So if anyone doesn't know the yo-yo test, the yo-yo test is like a fitness test where you pretty much do suicides up and down until you can't run anymore. Like a bleep test. Bleep test, same, similar concept, little, slightly different rules. So I was like, oh, shit, Jesus Christ. So I'm driving down to Limerick here, back killing me. Sitting. I remember, I not necessarily, so he gave me a lift down. And I remember sitting in the car and I kept fucking moving because like my back's killing me here. But I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. So then we ended up turning up this sports hall. I met the sports like, or the sports scientist or whatever. I was trying to get coach. I was like, hey, yeah, yeah, how's the back? I was like, yeah, yeah, Grant. And I ended up doing the yo-yo and I was fine. And it was the weirdest thing ever. I, I did it and I was grand. Now, granted, I hadn't ran in a year, so I was blown, but I did a pretty good score and I just could, it didn't make sense how I was better. It, it, it was bizarre. So then I drove home. I was like, fucking hell, I'm back. So I ran my dad. I was like, dad, I'll just find there. 
Um, so then the next blades, I wasn't back then to limit for another week or something. And then I kept doing my rehab exercise that I'd gotten pretty good at. And then I kept running and I was like, geez, I'm ready to go here. Yeah, then I moved away from UCD and then I went into full-time football. And like that, I was constantly under the impression of, Jesus, how long can I go here without breaking down? So in my head, I started getting to the stage, all right, this could be my last game of the season here. If I can get through the first one, happy days. And that was honestly, when I first played for Limerick, that was my mentality of every game could be my last one. So I remember I used to get hyped up on pre-workout before games and anyone that was in the dressing room at the time would see me taking these big, shiny, purple pre-workouts because I was thinking, like, I, I'd run myself into the ground thinking, like, my back would go any time here. And I honestly, that's what, what I felt like I was playing on chopsticks because I wasn't, I wasn't sure if I was better. I was just didn't feel it, and so I just kept going. You were talk, talking there about your, your mentality uh, when things are, are going well. So when you're playing, you've, you've talked about your mentality. What was your, what was your head like when you weren't playing for that year? Um, I, I, see, I think I dealt with it quite well. And like that, I, I, I still don't ever feel too – I never really get stressed. I'm not really a stressful person. I can get frustrated, right? But at the time, I kind of I was under the impression that I would be back. Every time someone asked me, when are you back? I actually genuinely was under the impression, oh, I'll be back in another three weeks. I'll be back hopefully for this game. Because um, like I said, I'd work with the physio and she'd be telling me, oh yeah, you're looking good at this. Hopefully now we'll get you back running and we'll phase you in and you might be back. And there was a couple of times where I was close to getting back. And I remember I went back, it was like maybe six months into the injury. And I, I got back out on the pitch and I was back with the trainer. I still remember there was one training session I came in and I dropped the shoulder and I whipped one into the top corner and Carl O'Neill at the time, the head, the, he was the coach. He was like, oh, Dino's back. And I was like, yeah, fucking hell, I'm feeling great. And then broke down again. Hmm. Um, so the, obviously the, the little setbacks were, were tough to deal with because then, like I said, I used to cycle my bike everywhere and UCD to Dundrum where I lived, there was a big uphill cycle. So I'm there cycling home, moping that my back's killing me again and I'm, it was it was a hard thing to deal with because then at this stage, once my this happened to my back, college, nah, nah, I don't give a shit about studying for history. You know, what I mean, I'm I'm thinking, my well, how do I get back fit? Because this is what I want to do. But it, it's something I learned from massively, and it's something I still take into today with my some of my clients about even trusting the process of how long something takes just to get get to where you want to be. And well, I used to turn up for rehab every day in that physio clinic and be like, right. Let's go again. Let's go again. Let's go again. And it was just because I was desperate. I was because I couldn't go to like Phil. I couldn't go to concerts and stand up for too long without being in agony. I couldn't. Like, there were so many normal day things I couldn't do. So never mind. Then it was. It became not just about getting back out and playing football. It became, am I going to be able to do anything again? But yeah, it, if I, I, to sum it up, I think it was just a massive, massive learning curve for me. Yeah. Like I said, I learned massively about myself from it. I learned massively about the human body from it. Um, and then that's what really kickstarted my kind of love for being involved with the S&C coaches uh, for every club I've ever been at. That. And fundament- fundamentally, that's, I think, what led me down then the road of the career I'm in there, which is performance coaching. So you, you went to Limerick. How long were you in Limerick? So I went to Limerick for one season and then... I had, had a good season. That was another one there where I felt like I'd established myself in the league round. So I think I was kind of known people like, but looking back at now, when you play for UCD, people just, you're just another UCD player and it's kind of pushed you to the side. But 
you look at the leagues, so many good players have come through UCD and I don't think they actually earn the respect until you leave UCD and do it again somewhere else. Um, so I went to Limerick, I did pretty well. And then I got a, I went to Rovers, I went to Shamrock Rovers then the year after that. And then that was like a goal of mine. I was like, and then this goes back to my naivety of signing for Rovers. I was on a two-year contract. And then this is where reality hit of what football's like for me. So I signed a two-year Rovers. Pat Fennell signed me. And I kind of, not riddled with injuries, but I picked up a few things just like kept me out for here and there. And I was never really as sharp as I wanted to be. But also, I thought I'd made it. So now I thought, right, I'm playing for the biggest club in Ireland. I can now, instead of telling people I'm playing for UC against Shamrock Grovers, I'm now saying, oh yeah, I play for Shamrock Grovers. People know where I am. And you do, you build a little bit of a profile. And again, my perception of myself then became bigger than what I thought it was. I then now was just another player, Shamrock Grovers. Again, that wasn't living up to what I should be doing. I wasn't playing as well. I wasn't looking after myself as well as I should have been. I wasn't eating as well as I should have been. And then I got, I started getting dragged into the negative side of football. Good players have been left out and they become that kind of the negative side of the dressing room or I was in a team there that was underachieving. And that's when the up there and the mental side of the game come into play. So the highs are up there, but you can drop very quick and be like, so low very quickly so I'll give you an example where this is how funny the mental the mental part of it was where I played a match on a Friday and I think I got man a match and I done really well and I was thinking right I'm going to take this in for the next weeks Monday morning I turned up for training and I had a stinker in the warm up and it ruined my whole week and then I went home on that Monday after being the best player in the pitch on a Friday and I started thinking again geez, I'm not good enough again and again it was something that I was still only developing as a like 21, 21 year old player who would always see myself as I am pretty mentally strong, but I looking back, I wasn't. I, I really wasn't. And I, that's what does I mentally strong mean? Like what? Our mental strength for me right now is doing the little things all the time, doing the minuscule things all the time, really easy. Because I'll give you an example what I like to use with people is anyone could go out for 45 minutes and give it their all for a training session or whatever. And soon could say, oh, fucking hell, see how hard he works. He must be really mentally tough. But I, I, I don't think that is. And someone working hard for a really short amount of time is not mental toughness. It's not mental strength. The mental toughness is waking up at 5 a.m. to go and prepare your food because it's boring, but you know it's the right thing to do. Like if you take it back to what you're saying there about playing for hours and having that great game on a Friday and then not so well on the Monday, yeah. presumably it's the negative is outweighing the positive and it's just playing on your mind, which then stops you from doing what you know is yeah. possibly the right thing to do. I just had this, I think I always had this idea of maybe you're not as technically good at this as other players. Because anyone knows, I would have always relied on my athleticism. And then I actually got technically better as I kept getting older. And because sometimes I felt like I wasn't the best at something, that that showed up. And other people thought that about me as well. Like maybe he shouldn't, he's not good enough to be here. And this is when I was at Rovers, where, like I keep saying, like I'm at one of the top clubs in the country. So if, if I felt like if I'm not impressed with my teammates, again, they're the ones that I valued the most. Again, fans were. Yeah, they mattered, but I, I wanted to impress my teammates and I wanted to impress the managers, the coaches. I think then I just went through different periods of up and downs, up and downs, and it, how I performed always would impact how my mentality was. And it, it irks me today where, and this is going back to mental strengthening, 60 minutes or 70 minutes into a match, I've scored a goal, I'm playing well. I'm thinking, well, I've done enough to impress now. I'm, I might say I'm struggling here. 
And it, this is one thing I look back on. And I used to do it when I was younger as well. That I like, well, I've done enough. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll say I'm struggling a bit with injury. I've impressed enough to make them think, right, he was really good there. And even now, so, I look sorry, back you, you you'd asked to be taken off. I'd almost, I'd almost say, look, I'm struggling. Uh, yeah, I would. I would. I would. Like 10 minutes ago, I'm like, well, I've done enough. And I'm not that I'm tired and stuff. I just, like I said, my fitness stuff has always been really good. I always thought, right, I've scored a goal or two. I've assisted a goal. I've, I've impressed enough that if more time goes on, I might not do that well. And it was, it, it's a, when I look back on it, it's a fucking weird thing to do. And anyone looking, or if anyone that knows me would listen to us now, they, they wouldn't probably expect that from me because I would have always, I think, gave off the impression of that. And it wasn't until I got to like 26, 27, 28 that that wouldn't even come into my head and I wouldn't allow that into my head. But when I was younger, it would. And I, I, I don't know what it was. And I, the next day, I honestly, I'd, I'd feel that like ashamed part of it. And I was like, I can't believe I was doing so well. And you know, like, and I'd always look at other players. Say you're watching a match, you're thinking like 10 minutes ago, Ronaldo, he's not thinking I want to come off. He's thinking, yeah, give me the ball so I can make something happen. But I wouldn't have that. I generally didn't have that at a young age, and I think it's something that held me back massively. And I'm in a in a football match with ten minutes ago. You're losing one there. You have all these lads saying, "Come on, come on!" And at a younger age, I was giving up. I really was. And it's 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 a thing I can't believe in now. When I look back at doing up until a certain age, I I used to just say, "Now nah. in my head, I'm thinking we're not going to score." I didn't have that resilience. I didn't have that belief that I was always going to win. And again, that was just another thing I, I, I developed and it was purely because I thought about it so much. I, I don't know. And I've never thought, I don't, you know what, Phil, I don't think I've ever told anyone this, that I used to have that mentality of 10 minutes ago is, well, I feel like I've done enough now. In case I mess it up, I'm going to say, oh, my hammy's, I'm struggling here in my hammy or whatever else. And I think I wouldn't be the first player, if any player listened to this, I would, I for sure, I know I'm not the only player that's ever thought like this, had this mentality. Because I've heard of other players that don't even want to start the game, never mind, like, play most and try to do mm. well, you know what I mean? It's natural though, isn't it? Because like, I think even if you take it out of the football spectrum, if you take it into the normal world, what like what you've done is there in the bank. That's what, what you have to rely on. What's in the future, what you haven't done isn't. So... That's the scary part. It's trying trying to convince yourself that you actually can go and do whatever it is you want to do. So in a, in a way, it makes sense to me that you'd be saying after 60 or 70 minutes, look, I've done all this really good stuff. I'm not 100% sure what's going to happen in the next 20 minutes. And it, it may not be as good as the last 60 minutes. So yeah, why not just take take me off? Well, yeah, and then but for sure, if you break it down that way, but imagine you're the manager and you know one of your players is thinking like this and you're one of them. And now as a coach, because I'm, if anyone that knows me, I am demanding as fuck. And it's something that I like get with all, in terms of work rate and the mentality I'm trying to build myself to push onto my clients, any clients or anyone I work with, even sports teams I work with. That resilience of not, not just giving up, but like being raw and savage and working yourself to the bone. And it's, it's something that I'm so passionate about now. No, but I look back at now and it's almost like, for me, I feel like it. Yeah, shame or even disappointed in myself that I was like that. And now I love doing it. Um, and like anyone that works with me now, I go into the gym by myself and do a two-hour gruel by myself, no bother. And it was just because all I'm thinking is not, I'm not giving up, I'm not giving up. And mm. like a couple of weeks ago, I went out and I, I just ran a marathon because I wanted the mental battle of it. And I mem- I even and look, and this is where I still have it. And I know I still have it because on that marathon, when I hit the wall, that came into my head as, ah, I've done enough. But then I was like, no, 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 you ain't stopping. I was like, this is where, and I was like, this is what it's about. This is, you get you this, everything else is easy. 
But again, I think it just comes from experience. And as I said, if I when I stopped playing football a little while ago, I was really getting to a stage where I was really mentally tough. I really was. Um, and I think if I should ever go back now and think of it, I'd be at a different mentality. I'd go into it with a different perspective altogether. What was it like playing for the biggest club in Ireland from a per like from a personal point of view, not not from you know uh, a footballing point of view, but from a Dean Clark as a person? Um, disappointing because, like I said, I thought when I signed for Rovers, oh, this is it. I'm gonna be really well known, and I'm gonna start making more money. Like at the time, you're talking football scholarship, uh, football contracts. If you're making six, seven hundred quid a week, I was thinking, geez, I'm on loads of money here. I can start doing whatever I want, like six or seven hundred quid. Where looking back now, I'm like, what was I thinking? Yeah, I think for me, it's disappointing because we had a disappointing season. And then towards the end of the season, it didn't end great for me. So, what happened was I got signed for Pat Fenlon, brought me in, I had a really good start the year. And then I picked up a couple of injuries with my groin, I think it was in time. And then the season wasn't going great for us. We had a couple of really bad results, got knocked out of Europe. And then Pat Fenlon getting sacked, and Stephen Bradley came in, who is still the manager today. And then I always got the impression Brad wasn't mad about me. I kind of knew he, he didn't really like me that much. And then as the season trickled on, I was in and out, in and out. And then by the last game of the season, I kind of knew I wasn't in favour. But I was on a two-year contract. So I was like, oh, well, I'm here next year. And so all I'll think is I'll get really fit. I'll come back flying for next season and I'll, I'll prove it. So I met up with him one day and then he said, look, you're not on my plans for next year. I was like, what? Well, I was like, well, I'm on a two-year. And he was like, yeah, well, you're not going to play. So I'm thinking, right, do I want to just be one of these fuckers? That, and like I've seen it before, players come back and just sit in the bench, not even sit in the bench, sit in the stand, turn up the train every day and just do it to get paid. I'm like, I don't want to be that fella. I don't want to turn up and be somewhere I'm not wanted. So he kind of gave me the ultimatum. It was either you can stay, you're not going to play, I'm not going to play. And that's what that's the words you kind of use. You're not going to play. Um, even if there's no other strikers in the club, say you're hit by no, like, an injury curse or something. Yeah, like like I was playing as a winger, and I look back at now, and I was just as good, if not better, than some of those players. But when you have someone telling you, "Look, I like him more than you," you're like, "Oh shit, okay." And I think I, you know, and it's something that angers me today. I think when he said to me, "Look, I've got him and him," and I'd be like, "Yeah, I know, yeah," and I just accepted he was better than me. I I remember I left him that day, and I was like, "Right, I need to find another club." So, luckily enough, I then went back to Limerick. So I, I think I got in contact with the PFI, told them what was going on. And then a couple of clubs came looking. So I ended, up, I ended up walking away from Rovers anyway, massively disappointed and with a bit of a chip on my shoulder because the players he brought in ahead of me, I didn't feel were better than me. Um, and to this day, I think I know they weren't better than me. But I went back to Limerick then and then I had again another really good year year because I loved it down there. And then led me on to Pats for three years. And then Pats then is where I really started to grow um, as, a, as a person, as a player. I then started working outside of it and I realized the potential for working outside of it and getting away and I'll go back to where I was talking about football can be so negative and I stepped into something then that was so positive all the time and the people now I work with who are so positive and when yeah, you say football so negative, what, what do you mean? Like you're 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 playing for a club that you, you want to play for, you're obviously doing well, they're paying you to play, that's what you want to do. How is there how are there any negatives there? So because you, you come into football with people that have a lot of egos. So you step into an average dressing room, you've got players, say, 20 players. Okay, 20 players with every player has been told since they're a kid, majority has been told how good they are and that they are, they are really good players. And they've, they've always had the same ambitions of making it a career. But obviously only 11 players can play. 
So then you have nine players that are really, really good players and they're not playing every week. So then you, you like I said, I go back to where you're talking about where players have that negative impact in dressing room where, uh, like I said, in my last couple years, I turned into this really positive person and I was getting into this, all this thing about me- mental kind of strength and stuff where some players just like didn't give a shit if we lost, didn't give a shit if they weren't, pl- no, no, not if they weren't playing, but just were sacking it off. And in my opinion, weren't doing everything they should have been doing. They weren't looking after themselves the way they were doing it. When you're part of a team, it's kind of frustrating where you're really looking after yourself, you eat really well, but you know someone on your team isn't doing it. It's just frustrating because like it's, you're in that male dress room mentality where like things get taken to piss out of for something. And like, if you look at my Instagram, I'd put up stuff of me like training with my top off and stuff. And like, I'd get ripped out of it, but I wouldn't care. And I, it was something I would have not for sure done when I was 21 to 24, maybe. But as I started getting older, and because I was in good shape and stuff, I'd do stuff like that. And I'd come in, the lads would slag me about it. Then they'd come up and be like, oh, what are you doing here? Or what are you eating here? And they'd, they'd want advice from it. But in the whole, no one wants to be seen as the one to step outside of the, not the comfort zone, but step outside the box and do something a little bit different. And that's why the, the idea of then the negativity that surrounds football of one side of it where players are just always trying to just, this is what you're into. You're into betting and stuff like that. You're you're into pretending like you don't care. Like not caring was a big thing with football. But I don't understand why. Like players, it was a funny thing. If a player would come back from preseason, you'd be like, oh, did you do much training? And most of them like, nah. Like, and I'd be like, what? Like, ah, it wasn't ours. Like, and then the other negative side of it then was the winning and losing side of it. So anyone that's in the job will know, like, your work week, I don't know how it ends, but when it's football, your week ends of building up to a match. So you're starting your Monday, you have a little graph that's just building, 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 get to the match. You lose, everything you did was wrong. You win, everything you did was right. When you walk into a dressing room after a game and there's just this silence of people looking at the ground, looking around, will I say something, will I not say something? The manager starts talking, saying, what's going on? What did we do wrong? Why did this happen? It's 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 one of the worst experiences ever. Um, and unfortunately, I went through it a lot. I lost quite a lot of games. And you come home to say your girlfriend or your family, and they're trying to chat to you, and you're in horrible humor. Someone might say it's only a game, but it's not. It's like it's the football side of everything. I think is will be interesting to, to some people because they're they're into football. But I think everybody who listens will you know is a person and will, will understand the emotions that you that you're talking about there. As a footballer, and you're on say a contract of four hundred quid a week. Were you conscious that that amount of money is going to make it hard to get by? Uh, and were you conscious of what somebody working in a job that in any other job that you could get? Did you know what they were making? Yeah, yeah, you know, you know what it is that because then so in League of Ireland as well, it's another thing that's so frustrating that typically you only get ten month contracts. So you get your contract from January to December. And during the off-season, because the clubs don't have huge financial resources, you don't get paid November, December. So you're coming into the hardest part of the year, the most expensive part of the year, not getting paid. Excuse me, not getting paid. So it was something that I used to just, it was just normal that I'd be like, because I was in this bubble of the League of Ireland that I just, oh yeah, November's come up, I don't have a job. I'm either going to sign a dollar or I'm going to get a little ad hoc job for six weeks or two months just to get me by. And it was about three years ago. And um, when I got a job that I hated, I was doing my degree in strength and conditioning at the time. 
And I was like, right, I need to start getting involved in this because I know I can make good money of that because I know I'm good at it. Because I done little, I started off coaching people in parks and stuff, and it was like family and friends and stuff like that. But I knew I was good at it. I knew I had a knack for it. I knew I brought energy to people because feedback I got was really good. Then come January, it was when I started then working in B2B, where, which is where I'm at now. I realized then again how much potential for making money is. So like you said, when you realize the money you're on playing football isn't substantial, let alone to save money and put away for when you retire, because obviously you retire at 30. Well, I'm retired. Well, I'm not saying I'm retiring, but I'm stopped playing at 27. <laughs> like... The fact that players on a yearly basis would move through a whole year, either get a loan just to get them through November, December, pay that loan off through the whole year, do it all again for year on year on the end. And then come the end of December, you're like, oh, geez, I don't get paid till the end of January. And it's just a horrible merry-go-round of waiting on a paycheck. And it was not, and it was just living by paycheck to paycheck. And that's what I did. That's what I did for so long. But you also don't want to let people from the outside know that. So I would have had girlfriends at the time like, oh yeah, playing football, I make good money, I'll pay for this, I'll pay for that. I'm fucking skinned. Like, I, like, and it was only then when I realized then, i never done it before when I added up what I was making per year. And then I, was, then I started like seeing my mates who were now coming out of college at 24, 25, whatever it was, and what money they were making. I'm thinking, what? So when you break that down, that's what you get per week? So I was thinking, nah, I need to change this. So then I started obviously working two jobs and I was like, right, I'm getting close to what they're making. Um, and this is obviously working full-time football and almost doing a full-time job outside. Mm. I'm like, right, I need, to, I need to find a way to make this better. So then I got to a stage where I was playing football full-time and I was working full-time in the gym. And now at this stage, I'm making good money, but I'm getting up at 4 a.m. to do a 5 a.m. PT, 6 a.m. PT, 7 a.m. class or whatever it is, going down to train full-time with a club from whatever it was, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., going back into the gym from half three to half nine. Because at the start, again, like I was burning the candle at both ends, but I would have been a naturally really energetic person and really positive. I'm like, oh, yeah, God, I can do this forever. Like, I'm making good money here. I'm doing this and that. And then, of course, it all catches up on you one day when your performance starts struggling on one side. You're getting maybe four hours sleep and you're, you're expected to go through these, like, 15-hour-long days. And like players I played with, especially my last couple of years, the Pats would have thought, geez, you're mad. Like, because we're finishing, a, like, say, a preseason training, which is a double session where you're just pretty much slogging runs and you're, everyone's knackered. And all you're being told is, yeah, go back to bed and go chill out for the day, go eat. I'm like, nah, I have to leg it back to the gym. I've got, I've got clients for the next six hours. So the, 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 your teammates then, what is the, as close to a typical day as possible for a League of Ireland footballer who's at a professional club? Turn up at half nine or ten whatever typically well, every club I was always at with here you start at half ten so you to get there an hour before so you turn up at half nine if you need to see the physio you go see the physio you sit around with the lads have a chat have a cup of tea if you need to do your prehab or whatever work and then you're on the pitch for half ten training probably then till half ten till twelve half twelve you'd have half an hour hour break depending and then you're in the gym if you're in a double session for an hour so you usually finish your day up by half or two it just strikes me if, if I if you know, if, if a player was getting paid four hundred quid a week and had, you, you know, and it, that was their, and they had a full day, like say nine to five or nine to six, the amount of time they would have outside of that to think about the amount of money they're pay, being paid or you know where to spend that money would be remarkably reduced. But the reality is that those guys must be 
they've got so much time to think about all the things they could be doing, but don't. Yeah, and there it is, and it goes back to there's very few players now. It's it's getting better for sure, but there's players now that are now starting to go back and do courses, and you have things like the PFI to help players and do really push for players to kind of step into the education side of it. But so many players, like you ask them, what are you gonna do after football? And they go, no, I'll get a job. There's no end site in football where it ends very quickly. But it's another thing I have to do when I was thinking about stepping away from football is players have the identity of being a footballer. So you probably know someone and how do you know him? Oh, he was a footballer or he, like, that's how I know him. Even that's how I know you. I know you through football. So when I was thinking about it, I was like, oh, well, what will, if I stop playing here, what will my granddad think? Or what will my friends think who now can't go and watch me play football? Or what will my brother think who was a big like football fan and always really like loved watching me play? And little things like that play in your head is, oh, if I step away, I'm going to let a lot of people down. Um, or I'm going to kind of throw away everything I've, committed for the last 10 years where and it's it, it's another thing where with sports well you sacrifice so much anyone that is involved you'll know how much you have to give up going to weddings like I, I've only ever been to one wedding which like at 28 years old is kind of a bit weird but I've only been to one wedding and luckily that was during a Christmas wedding but I had to miss people really close to me parties 21st parties growing up like I never got to do any like like J1 visas or real traveling and it's something that I've always wanted to do the kind of idea I had of it was like, no, nah, if I football, I can't do anything else because if I miss training, I'm going to lose this. And I, I noticed because I had a good, I had a really good, um, I had a really good attitude. But it was always, no, football comes first. Yeah, I think it, it almost backfires in you then because you do give so much to it and get such little back. And I think it was, it was, I had to be quite brave when I was making the decision last year. Well, yeah, it's close to a year now that I made the decision. Um, I was like, right, you know what? Going forward, this is, this is not going to take me to where I want to be. This is not going to allow me to do the things I want to do. So, It's an amazing thing that the world is full of such potential to, to have so many experiences. You could go to college or not go to college, get a job that's a great job or, or not a great job, but you're work, you could work towards something and you could go travel. You could do so many different things across, across the world if you have, like say, a, a straight up nine to five job and have all those experiences. It's amazing the power that the words professional footballer then have over people to, to prevent them doing any of those things. It's a profile thing, and it's almost like an ego thing where players are afraid. To, and I know this for a fact, because this is how I felt. And because, and I, I don't know how to, how to word this, but it's because you've committed so much to it. You're afraid to step away from it because you feel like you just wasted so many years of it. But I now look at it back and I'm nearly a year out of the game. But I think I look back and think, oh, it was actually so good for me because the amount of connections I've made and the amount of people I got to know. And don't get me wrong, I got to go to some places I'll probably never go, like through football. Like I got to go to India, I got to go to Finland, Iceland, Sweden, Belgium, all these countries through football. But then on the flip side, how much did I sacrifice? Like I sacrificed never being to America. I sacrificed because most people go to America during the summer or go in the winter, but sure. I don't have a job in the winter. I can't afford to go to New York. What's so, India like? Um, so we went, I was, when we went, to, we actually ended up there for three weeks. We went to a place called Kochikode. So it wasn't like normal people where they go to New Delhi or Mumbai where most people go traveling to India. We went to a small little city for a tournament when I was with Shamrock Rovers. And we ended up spending three weeks there, which wasn't planned. But we went to this small little city and we were playing matches against teams from all over the world. It was actually it was a serious experience. The thing that always resonated with me the most was how poor they were. 
I remember on the first day, we you take money out and you take like, what was it called? The rubies. So you'd have like the Indian rupee. I took like 20 euro equivalent out. And I remember I jumped on one of the little tuk-tuks and I got on. I was like, yeah, can you take me to the beach? Because the beach was there. 10, 15 minute took the drive away and me and one of the lads were on it. And we got out and I handed your man the note and he didn't know what to do. I was like, just give me change. Like, he's like, no, no, I, he didn't have change. I was like, all right, just keep it. I think it was probably 15, 20 euros. I was like, you'd have to cycling 15 minutes here. I was like, all right, just keep it. And he gets down on his hands and knees and he's thanking me. And I'm thinking, what's this fella doing? And he's, he had pretty good English. He's like, thank you, that, that'll feed my family for the month. Like, so I was like, oh, shit. Okay, so when, when you're in India, there's not a whole lot of money to spend on because we're in this small little city that has a shopping mall full of fake crap. You can go to the sweet shop, you buy sweets. We weren't drinking or whatever. So, you know, you don't to spend your money on, really. Because we're there as a sports team, you can't go and travel by yourself. Anything you do, do, you do as a team, the club pays for. So I remember then we got to the last day and at the start of the week, you're probably taking out 100 euro worth of rupee, which is, God knows how much, I can't remember now. Sure, and then we were like, well, what are we going? We're not going to go. There's no point in just going to turn this back into Euro and whatever. So I remember we all went out to the streets and it was like, I swear to God, Jesus is walking through the streets. So we're just giving people on the streets money. And like, it was something I always remember in my head of the face of some of them that there's one homeless head with one leg that used to always sit outside a hotel. I remember I gave him, it was quite a few. And the chap nearly stood up with his one leg and to thank me, like it was, it was amazing. And it was something that always resonated with how just seeing another part of the world like that, that, geez, this happens, like, yeah. um, where, of course, you could tell someone that happens, but until you really see it, it was in that short space of time that I was like, right, I'm going to do this so much for the, rest of, for the rest of my life. But seven years later, I've never been anywhere. And I think everyone wants to be that person where, like, I've ever been here. And you're like, no. I've ever done this. No. Every, you always want to be the person that's done this, done that. And Phil Burke, he's been to Australia. He's been to New Zealand. He knows it's, like, all around the world. You don't want to be the person that's closed off and never experienced everything. And yeah, that's when I, that, that was a big part of when I was thinking, right, I need to step away from this because I'm not doing the things I want to do in my life. Yeah, it might be playing football and I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying playing football kind of, but take a step back and what advice would you give to yourself if from the outside looking in? You'd probably say, look, it's time to step away. And What impact does the Premier League in England have on kind of idea of being a professional footballer in Ireland? I think assumptions that it's the same where it's in no way the same so like players that's obviously the ultimate goal to get there and be set up for life and they commit just as much as we commit but obviously they're committing it for a big big reason because when they retire they can retire like I, I only I didn't realize this but I would have always presumed like they spend way more time on the training ground than we do and they do this then from what I've learned over the years that they did the same hours as we did. They'd have a match on a Saturday, so they prepared on Monday, Tuesday, probably have the double sessions, off on a Wednesday, in on a Thursday, prepare for a Friday, game Saturday, off Sunday. Same schedule we'd always have. Where I put it, I think I was under the impression that they train for five hours a day and blah, blah, blah. Like that, I said, the assumption of it's the glamour and you only see the glamour side of it. And I think more people are starting to realise when you see like the behind the scenes documentaries of what it's like to be push to the side of if your manager doesn't like you and stuff. It's it's really tough, like, because you're committing so much. And like I said, you're chasing, that's the goal for everyone, to get over to England and make big money and have your life sorted. But the percentages is very small. Um, no one I know in the League of Ireland ever that has played a full career has 
saves enough and being comfortable after they retire because it's not possible. You just don't make enough money. At the end of the day, when you retire, then what? Like that, when you do retire, and it's something that I, I used to play in my head is, you're now 10 years behind everyone else. And I remember the PFL used to come in and give us stats and they met the players, like I think it was like 51% of the Warren players don't have a leaving cert. So it does. It used to be the funny one. I think that's why I'm always thankful I came from that background where I came into lads that were focused about their career who were becoming architects after, were becoming engineers after, were doing whatever else. I came from that mentality of, right, I always had to have something in my head of what I'm going to do after because just in case, where you step into, when I went from there to say Limerick or not even Limerick, into Rovers, lads, nah, college not happening. Like we're full-time footballers. This is what we are. Um, but used to do was different and it's something I always thank, uh, thankful for that I was introduced to lads that I'm still really good friends with today who are now becoming lawyers and they're engineers and stuff that it gave me the reality of you need to have something after you need to be working on something because, and, and you can do both you can study and you can like make it happen because um, obviously the ideal thing is you go to UCD you play football you get your scholarship you get your degree you have your degree put away, you kind of do little internships here and there or whatever it is. And then you have a bit of a football career and then you go back and you have, you're all ready to go. Where the flip side is, the thing you don't want to happen is you play football until you're 31, 32. You've got absolutely nothing. You're 31, 32 with a couple of kids. You're trying to buy a house and you've got nothing but a football CV. And a football CV doesn't go very far when you're trying to get a job and anything else. So, um, um, how often do footballers in Ireland fall into the trap of trying to live like a footballer in the Premier League, like say holidays or clothes or boots or like kind of? So, are you kind of forced to live outside your means, basically, as a as an Irish footballer? Yeah. So what I'd see the most is players that come back from England would bring this culture. So now social media and stuff doesn't help now because players see like the designer stuff and all, that's what they want. That's what they think they, excuse me, that's what they think they need to look like. So you, most English players to come back, they have a few quid. So they would have been on good contracts, but they very quickly realize that's not happening anymore. So they come back with like a nice car. And like, I've seen this so many times over the last couple of years that players would come back, drive a nice car, walk in with their Gucci fucking wash bag, boots and hands, Rolex, but they're not making the three, four grand they were making in the last couple of years now. They're back to making five, six hundred quid a week. And their car payments come quick and fast. And then I've seen before, then players start selling their cars. It's, it's, it's a horrible decline to see because I, like you, can, you almost witness it happening. They start realizing like they used to bet big money and they're still kind of trying to bet big money. They're still trying to give off this ego because they probably still friends with players in England that still live this lifestyle. But then it kind of sips into the younger generation, I think, and I still see it now today. And I think, like I said, it goes back to social media where young players today think they're ballers. They think they, they have this idea that, oh, I'm going to wear a Gucci cap and a D-square jumper and blah, blah, blah. And I'll tell people I play for, like I said, Pat, Rovers, Dundalk, whatever it is. And it's just, it's kind of frustrating to see because I kind of came to a generation that was quite level-headed and quite humble, where now it keeps getting worse, where young players... Now, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of lads with great attitudes out there. But younger players just have this notion of themselves because they're being built up on social media where like you see 16-year-olds now with like 10,000 followers. And it's bizarre because they have their fan base and they haven't even done anything yet. What I said about the life experience of it all, of 
when you get older and you want to go and travel other places and you meet people from different experiences and what you're doing feels so minuscule and like that you've you've kind of sacrificed, you're not sacrificed, but you've given it up to uh, given up a lot for it. Um it just puts it into perspective. Yeah. It really does. I am conscious that uh, I, I suppose the way I've asked you questions has been relatively it's been easy for you to give negative answers because I kind of want to try and show, show the the realistic side of being a being a footballer in Ireland. Yeah, yeah. Being, yeah. being brutally honest, like I love the League of Ireland, big fan of Irish football. I think the Irish footballers are hugely underrated from an ability point of view. And I think a lot of that has to do with um, the coverage of the game in Ireland. You know, I think if you look at, there's plenty of Premier League games that you watch on Sky that are all flashing lights and, you know, it's a fully furnished product. But the actual quality of the game mm. is, is no better or worse than what you might watch on, on RTE. But RTE doesn't have the budget to give it the full Sky package. And as a result, I don't think that translates as well then to to, to the watching public and the, the, the perception of the quality of the League of Ireland, I think, is lower as a result. Mm. What do you think is this is the solution? How do you give Dean Clark, who's coming up now as a, as a 17 or 18-year-old, the opportunity to be a well-rounded individual by travelling or by doing the things he wants to do and feed that desire for a football career and to achieve things, you know, to score those goals and to win those trophies and to, to do those things and not feel like I've, I've, I've lost 10 years of my life. Now, for sure, there's a way you can do both. Um, but I think then it does, you're, you can't do both to 100%, 100%. So for sure, you can go traveling, you can experience things, but you can't do it to 100% because... Like I said, the only break you get in the whole year is November, December. And typically, it's only six weeks in November, December. And then through the summer, you only get – most clubs, they give you four days. Um, some give you a week, whatever. I think the longest I ever had was 10 days during the Euros. So it then it goes back to then, well, what are your friends doing? So your friends could all be doing a J1 or they want to go away. But you're like, no, I've got four days in January. Let's go do something that I can do. I, I, I don't know if there's a way you can do both. Um, I think it's either if this is your career, this is what you have to commit. I, I think if you're fully fledged to a sport and making it a career, you going traveling and eating shit for six weeks and not doing much for six weeks, it's going to have a big impact. So you're either in and you're out, in my opinion. Um, and I think that's something that I always, even if I had a athlete that's coming up, and I, I, I coach quite a few athletes that are coming up on their top, top level, I, I still would give off that because if, excuse me, if this is what they want, it's what's required to get to that level because you're going traveling for six weeks. The person you're up against is in the gym. They're running. They're doing this for six weeks. You come back, you're already behind. So I, I, I don't think there is a solution. To be honest with you. I don't think you can do both. And I think you are really about ambitious at the top level of sports. It's hard to find the balance, in my opinion. David McMillan's a great example. David McMillan, who, if you don't know him, he's one of the top leading goal scorers, I think, in League of Ireland history now. I played him at UCD, and that's how I knew him. But Dave, I think, when he got his degree, went travelling for a year and just after UCD. So he did it so well. He did it. He, he, he knew what he was doing. He finished his degree, I think, went travelling for a year in Australia or six months or whatever it was, came back, did a master's, and then from there, took off. So he, he kind of dabbled into it the right way. But, um, like, you walk into an average League of Ireland restroom, 
our lads, who here has been to South Africa? Who here has been to Thailand? Who's been to Australia? You're talking two hands going up out of 20 probably. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's different. Then you go into a corporate world. Our lads, who did a J1 in America? Bam. Ten, nine out of ten hands go out. Who's been to Australia? Bam. And I think it's, and it comes down to life experiences then of what you want. And that's what I want. It's what I do want. And it's what I plan to do over the next couple of years for sure. Would it matter if, uh, like, would the dressing room be any different if if you asked that question and people said, yeah, I've, like the vast majority of people had been to all those countries or had had whatever life experiences, what impact would that have on on football or a football dressing room? I, I think it, it does kind of shape people. In my opinion, it shaped a lot of people because like life is all about experiences. Um and like some of the best things I've ever done, like I always go back to a trip, like I said, when I went traveling for six weeks with a couple of friends where we did like Vietnam, Cambodia and Thailand and the stuff I learned in that in six weeks and things I saw and you, you, it just sticks with you. So I can only imagine the stuff I've lost out in that my friends have gone to America and seen and done these things and people you meet along the way because again, meeting different people is so not just beneficial, but it has a massive impact on you. Like you, the the things you don't do, or people you could have met, could change your life, or things you saw, or could be little things um, along the way that you just don't realize. So if you go to a dressing room, lads that have only ever really been in Dublin, they've gone to Ibiza, they've been to fucking Salou with their family, they've really experienced something. If you're trying to convince a club that, like, let's just take a, a completely left field way of running a club and go, yeah, we're we're going to give players a partnership with companies that will allow our players to work part-time with them and, and make up the rest of the wages to give them a more comfortable life. On top of that, then, we're going to try and open their minds to go and traveling. Now, I don't know how, I don't know how in a practical sense, you, you would do that, um, whether it's giving them more time off um, to, to allow them to travel. Those players that come back into that dressing room as more well-rounded individuals, you'd have to make that case to the manager or the club that, you know, we're actually going to win more football matches because of this. Yeah, which isn't going to be the case. And again, you're thinking about the kind of welfare of the player here in terms of them being a person, but does that mean they're going to perform better? Absolutely not. And also the fact that it goes back to most players in the League of Ireland are on one-year contracts. So why in the hell would any club think, well, we're going to sacrifice all this so Dean Clark have a good time off and he comes back with a nice tan and... It just is but not. that's not what you're trying to get them to do. You're trying to get them to think that Dean Clark has had time off and is more relaxed and is a better person coming back into it so that he, I don't know, understands his teammates better or mm. he understands the the community better and feels a, a greater a sense of attachment to the club because he's he's seen what poverty is like across the world. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um but does that, again, how do you justify that to a club that yeah. this is going to make a difference to the results on the pitch? Probably not. Thank you, Dean. There are thousands of boys and girls across Ireland who would love to do what Dean Clark has done on paper. He has played over 200 times across the league and appeared for some of Ireland's biggest clubs. But what that paper doesn't show is the toll that has taken, physically, mentally, and practically, on his life. Broken back, battling the mental torture of performance and opinions of others and the realisation that he has missed out on so many life experiences that he would ordinarily cherish. If that is the reality, is it fair to continue to sell boys and girls the dream of professional football in Ireland? 
The League of Ireland is set up in a very similar way to the Premier League. In the UK, the players train at the same time as here. They go home and rest, like our players. They are weighted on hand and foot, unlike our players. They put money away for the future, unlike our players. They have multi-year contracts, unlike many of our players. Their profile allows them to make extra money, unlike our players. Our professional footballers work for 10 months of the year to get a loan to get through November and December and then pay off that loan throughout the rest of the year. It sounds to me the system in Ireland is broken. And because of that, players like Dean have left for pastures new. We definitely have the potential to create a league that works for everybody. But do we have the bravery? There is something very innocent about the image of Dean going out into the streets of India with his teammates to give away the rupees they weren't going to use. That innocence reflects the lack of life experience that Dean possessed at the time. He had heard about the poverty, but only once he saw it did it become real to him. It is an experience that has clearly stuck with him and most likely impacted him. I'm certain those experiences will create better people, more cohesion in the dressing room, and ultimately better performances on the field. That's all for today. I'll be back next week, and I hope you will too. We Are The People is presented and produced by myself, Philip Burke, and our team tune is The People by Trevega.